Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Today we interview journalist and USD alumnus Tom Clute about the twists and turns of his life and professional career. Tom, how are you doing today? I am doing uh, swimmingly, my friend. It's a it's a rainy and blustery day out here in Brooklyn, but uh, you know I'm getting by. Well, we are talking to you from South Dakota Public Broadcasting Studio. Um, you are an alum of USD and a special friend of the podcast because you're a friend of mine. We went to college together, um, but our friendship even starts before that. So I'm going to immediately put you under the gun. What was the best basketball team you faced in fourth or fifth grade? Oh, fourth or fifth grade. Okay. Um, you know, I'm going to have to go with the, uh, the Sioux Falls Storm. We played them in the, uh, the 1999 Willie Mack championship game. Uh, really formidable opponent. Um, I think they had won that tournament the year before. Um, and yeah, no, no one else we played in those years even came remotely close so, to that. I, I, I mean, because I was, I was going to say you might have been the team of the 90s, but then clearly <laughs> the team of the early 2000s would have been the 8th grade 2002 Watertown era as Big Four champions. Okay, okay, yeah. If you, if you want to move the goalposts a little bit, then yes, you, you are correct. Um, your, your school ball team won that competition. Fewer teams involved in that competition, I, I should, be, uh, should be noted. But uh, yeah, you know, uh, I guess if you want to claim uh, bragging rights for that then, then by all means but but what I, I in all seriousness no though uh, Watertown CWA your uh, your esteemed former club they were they were good too well we might have to run it back and bring out the three on three teams uh, just as a heads up no I, I my days are done man I uh, I gotta preserve these needs <laughs> I'm, I'm north of 30 dude I'm not I'm not I, my, my hardwood days are done I just I have this nightmarish fear of uh, my knees exploding the moment <laughs> I step foot on the <laughs> well, and the I, reason I the reason I bring it up is because I think that you have an interesting journey. You are you know come from a pretty normal South Dakota um, family, and you have done a lot of cool things professionally and with your career. Um, you know, first, what I guess got you to USD? What got me to USD? I mean, that's that's a good question. I um, I feel like for the better portion of my last two years, if not the entirety of my high school career, I always had designs on going to the University of Minnesota. I just really wanted to go somewhere big. I wanted to be in a big city. Obviously, that ambition uh, extended beyond college. I, I wound up in New York, but uh, I just, I really, I thought I'd end up in the Twin Cities. And, uh, you know, in, in the interest of full candor, I, I was a little bit of an underachiever in, in high school. I, I definitely did not hit the books as hard as I did in college or, or, or perhaps as I should have. Um, and I just ended up getting waitlisted at the U of M. It's a little uh, embarrassing, but uh, did not get accepted. And, you know, they kept waitlisting me, kept waitlisting me. And by the time like March or April of my senior year rolled around, I, I still hadn't really finalized my plans. All of my other friends were like, you know, uh, deciding who they were going to room with and they had already settled on, on going elsewhere. And, uh, and my sister was going to USD and, you know, I just kind of visited the campus on a whim. I'd obviously heard a lot about her experience there and, 
Um, I, I had aspirations of studying journalism uh, in college, and so she'd always uh, bring back issues of the Volant. And uh, you know, I, I at that point, the, the New Heart Center was. Uh, I mean, the paint was still wet. <laughs> it was it was brand new, and so it seemed like um, it seemed like it, it, uh, an attractive place in that regard. And then I, I just took a visit. Uh, I think it was actually March of, of my senior year, and uh, I, I was really quite taken by it. I, I really I enjoyed my my time there. Uh, the the idea of, of being there with my sister, who I'm, I'm really close with, that was appealing, and. Uh, yeah, it just um, it just kind of fell together organically. It it wasn't on my radar for the longest time, and then suddenly it was, and and that's where I wound up. Yeah, so you knew that you wanted to um, explore journalism even before you went to college. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, so when I uh, when I was a freshman in high school. I had my own column in uh, the the daily newspaper in my hometown, Huron, the Huron Plainsman. Uh, Got to give a shout out to them. Uh, and it was called Tom Talks, and uh, <laughs> not not the best title. Uh, although that that wouldn't be a bad podcast title. Now that I think about it, that, that's I just had the wrong medium. Uh, but so it was a, this so this ongoing column I had. I wrote about a variety of issues, and. I just loved it. I, I had that pretty much throughout the entirety of my, my four years in high school. And, you know, as I got older, it got increasingly political. Um, my junior year, that was, that was 2004. So that was an election year, presidential election year at that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it just, it was a really, as I look back on it now, um, that, that was just a really cool privilege that I had as a kid to, to have that outlet to, you know, express my, my beliefs and my perspectives and to also just, you know, foster my writing abilities. It, um, I really was lucky and yeah, it just, it just grew from there. I mean, I, I remember when I was a freshman and sophomore in high school, I, you know, read these sports columnists in the Washington post and the Boston globe. And I always thought I'd want to be a sports writer. But then, as I said, you know, I, my focus shifted toward the political realm as I got older, and then I started reading, you know, New York Times political columnists and these these great reporters for uh, Time Magazine and, and other publications. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it just it really that was the genesis of of my interest in, in politics. Um, it started at a very early age, and uh, yeah, I guess um, you know, it, it, I never quite shed that that ambition. Well, so then when you came to USD, did, were you a um, media and journalism major or did you major in political science? No. I, so I started as a, a mass comm major. Uh, I, I, that was one of my majors for my first year and a half. I was going to be a journalism and political science double major. That was the, that was the plan. I thought that would be a, a formidable combination. And, you know, um, I, I really, I took some great courses, uh, with the, uh, the mass comm program and I had some really cool professors. Um, you know, the, the new heart center is a really cool place to spend some time. And, but I, um, I, I just kind of decided that, well, one, I should say, um, I did start to waver a bit in my, my journalistic ambitions midway through my sophomore year of college. I wasn't sure if that was the, the route I wanted to take. I started to flirt with the idea of maybe going to law school eventually. 
And so I just thought, you know, I, I really like history. Um, I had already taken a couple of history courses at that point. I was like, you know, I'd, I'd like to tack that onto my major. I'd like to be a poli sci and history double major. Um, but I continued to write for the Volant. Um, I, I, you know, my, my love of writing, my, my passion for that never really, uh, never really, uh, declined, but I, uh, it, it was, it was one of those crossroads moments where I wasn't totally sure if I wanted to stay on the journalistic path. I didn't abandon it completely. I, I think I probably kept one foot on that path, but, um, yeah, I, I did not, did not finish in the mass comm program, uh, ended up as just a, a poli sci and journalism double major. And I, I would say that, you know, I didn't fully rekindle the, my interest in, in journalism and, and going down this path probably until after I, I graduated, graduated college. That's when I, I fully recommitted to this idea. Um, it was always lingering, but yeah, that's, I guess, um, if there was a moment in my, my trajectory when I, I maybe started to deviate away from, from this sort of career, uh, it was that, it was, it was at that point. You know, do you remember, um, any specific stories you wrote in the volant? Do you have a favorite? Oh God, that might be cringeworthy. And I, uh, maybe it's the same with Tom's talk. Maybe it's the same with Tom talks. I don't know if you have a a particular one that you remember or find. Well, let me, let me just tell you, I, I am, I am relieved that there's been no digital preservation of the Tom talks archive. (laughs) As far as I know, I'm going to knock on wood a zillion times right now, but as far as I know, uh, they really only exist in, uh, this, uh, this scrapbook that my mom compiled that <laughs> will not see the light of day. Um, the, I don't know about the Volan archives. Um, I, and I, I'm, you're exactly right. I, I'm sure it's cringe as hell, but I, you know, I, I started off on the opinion page, um, my freshman year. And, and then I think I, I went into reporting a little bit during my sophomore year. I kind of wanted to, to show my breath, but man, I can't, I'm trying to think. I, I know I did, pretty sure I did a story on the, um, just the interminable construction project that was the muck. Yeah. Remember how endless that was? <laughs> yes. And I, I feel like it was this much delayed, I mean, I don't think it opened until like, the second semester of our third year there. So we're talking like 2009, you know? So they were like, they spent the better portion of our time at USC building it. And I think that was, that was like one of my first reported stories, just, you know, kind of a, you know, what the heck is going on with this? So you were already bringing the heat way back when. I was, I was bringing, I was asking the questions that, you know, few, few wanted to pose. It was an uncomfortable topic, but someone had to say, when is the student union? <laughs> um, <laughs> you talked about, you know, you would gravitate towards political science and it had been, you know, a, a stronger interest from, for you as you grew. You know, what was the experience like at USD in the political science department circa 2007, 2008? Oh, it was awesome. I, you know, I, it's, you don't, you don't. You don't hear many negative reviews about USC's poli sci department. I, I, and I was attracted to it for that reason. I, its reputation really preceded it. Um, and I, I, I definitely wanted to take, I didn't fully commit to a poli sci double major until I think halfway through my freshman year. Um, but, you know, the very first course for me, um, as was the case for a lot of poli sci majors in that, in that era, uh, was American government with Mary Pat. 
the OG, uh, who needs no introduction, Mary Pat Byerly, um, mentor for, for both of us. Uh, amazing, amazing instructor. Um, one of the, you know, just one of the all-time great college courses I ever took. That, that class taught by her, it was, it was great. You know, it was, she, it, just to be, to, to sit in on these lectures from someone who just lives and breathes it and it just has this, um, this zeal for it. And, and I mean, combined with her, you know, deep, deep well of knowledge, of course, that, that came from her immense experiences. Um, I, I just loved it. And, you know, there were others. Eric Jepson was my advisor. Um, you know, he was uh, the director of my, my honors thesis committee. Um, it, I think you and I, did we take the, I think we had political theory together yep. with uh, Dr. Richardson, right? Mm-hmm. That was a good one. I, 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 felt, I felt dumb at times during that one. <laughs> I, I mean, I just like this, dealing with this really weighty text and, and trying to, you know, um, extrapolate these, these grand, lofty meanings from it. I, um, you want to talk about cringe. I'm sure you could probably find some, uh, some papers that I wrote about, like, <laughs> Socrates, the trial of life and death of Socrates that would just make me recoil. Uh, but no, I mean, it's just the, the USD poli-sci department, I don't want to sound like a, a shameless Kool-Aid drinker here. Uh, I... I I'm not, not engaging in propaganda. I'm saying this of my own volition. I, I think it's just a, it's a fantastic program, and it, it was um, enormously influential on, uh, on my own evolution well, as just a political thinker and uh, an adult, really. You know, uh, I, I thought it was a cool place. Well, and when did you graduate? Uh, 2010, May 2010. And so your first then job out of college was politically oriented, correct? Yeah. So, you know, at, at that point, spring of 2010, um, my, my collegiate career is winding down. Um, I still, I still harbored some interest in going to law school or maybe grad school. Uh, but I knew that I didn't want to do either of those right away. I just didn't want to get locked in. To, to one of those pursuits you know, right off the bat and then come to find out, you know, midway through the first year, like, oh, crap, this is just, it's not for me. This was, a, this was an ill-advised decision. And at that point, you know, it's almost, you know, you might be a year in or a few months in and then it's just like sunken cost. You, you've committed to this and um, there's kind of no turning back. And so I, I wanted to avoid that scenario I, because I wasn't 100% sold on, on either one of those endeavors. And, uh, so for me, I was like, I'm just gonna, I'm going to get a job. Um, I don't know what it's going to be. Uh, but I'm just gonna, I'm going to see, see where I end up. And, you know, I, I definitely was applying for jobs in cities. I was applying for a lot of jobs in the political realm, as you said. Um, and at that point, uh, you know, and this is just another, uh, endorsement for the the poli sci department there. You know, I had already gotten hooked up with some really great internships uh, during my summers at USC. I uh, spent three summers out of Washington D.C., two of which were spent interning on Capitol Hill. Uh, the third was uh, an internship at the State Department that was actually unique. It was a it was a program 
um, uh, through which the, the State Department actually partnered with a number of smaller, underrepresented universities across the country. USD was one of them. And so I was, you know, fortunate enough to be selected to, to participate in that. And so, you know, I had cultivated some contacts at that point, and I was, you know, maybe hoping to, to cash in and, and parlay those those connections to something before I, I graduated. And, uh, you know, it, it that that almost did materialize. Um, one of those internships was with former Congresswoman Stephanie Herseth-Sandlin, um, and I had stayed in touch with a number of staffers in her office uh, after that internship completed. And, uh, you know, as I neared graduation, uh, they had made some inquiries to me about a, a possible opening in their office out in D.C. And uh, long story short, I was I was offered a job by them. Uh, I think it would have been a staff assistant job, you know, so pretty junior. Uh, but uh, they yeah, they offered me that about a month and a half before my graduation. I want to say it was like March of my senior year. Uh, and that was almost 10 years ago at this point. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, obviously a very compelling offer. Um, the idea of having a, a job waiting for me after I graduate, I mean, that would have been, that was certainly enticing, but, uh, you know, I got cold feet. <laughs> I, did, I didn't know if I wanted to commit to being a, a, a Capitol Hill staffer. Um, and, you know, I think that it's just a good lesson in being sensitive to, um, to, to overcommitting or, or to getting in too deep in any sort of endeavor. And I, I've always been very sensitive to that, you know? Oh, people say you can change jobs, people change careers all the time. And I think that is true. But I, I also have uh, this, this apprehension about, you know, going down one track and, and being unable to, you know, remove myself from that track. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I could carve out a career as just a, a legislative aide, and then maybe the the uh, you know the apex of that trajectory would be you know, chief of staff, or you know, for me as a writer, maybe I could be a speechwriter or a communications guy for some member of Congress or a senator, or, you know, somewhere in that Washington D.C. orbit would have been great. I mean, the, I'm not knocking that as a career, but for me, I just there there was just something that was that was uh, pushing me away from that. I, 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 so I just had to trust my instinct and uh, politely declined. Ended up taking a job as a field organizer uh, with the Minnesota DFL, which was, you know, by its very nature of being a, a, a campaign job, uh, was temporary. And so that was attractive to me too. You know, I could commit to this from June until November and then the election ended and, you know, go back to the drawing board. And so uh, I, it was just very important to me to maintain that flexibility at that point. And uh, I got to say, I'm, I'm glad, I'm not trying to congratulate myself here, but I, I am glad that I did that. I'm glad that I trusted my instinct. I'm, 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 I'd rather be here than, you know, working on Capitol Hill. And so um, I think it's, it's an important reminder that, you know, if something doesn't feel quite right, if you're, if you're not, if you're not totally sure, especially if it's going to be a, a big commitment, potentially, you know, years of your life. Um, I, I think that's, that's never something to be taken lightly. And even if on the surface to everyone else around you, it seems like a no brainer, which taking that job with, with Congresswoman Kirsten Sandlin probably did to a lot of people. Uh, 
it doesn't matter. That's those are those are secondary considerations. It's all about what you want and what you want to do and what feels right to you. And uh, I will just say, I, it took me years before I uh, divulged that to my parents. Uh, <laughs> well, and I'm glad you brought this story up because I was there for some of it. I mean, I remember. Yes. Yeah. Um, you wrestling you with the decision and how you struggled with it, you know, and then yeah. they, I mean, then you kind of went to what the proverbial Siberia of DFL <laughs> politics, um, yes. sort of in yes. the Northern, um, legislative district. I mean, did you ever regret, like, did you ever regret the decision in the moment? Um, have you oh, ever you wrestled sure. with it and thought, what if even now? No, not now. Not now. No, I, it's, it's the opposite. I feel somewhat vindicated. Um, but certainly in the months that followed or the, even the year that followed, absolutely. I, I second guessed that decision repeatedly. I thought, Oh my God, what if I just blew it. And that was a, that was just served up to me on a silver platter and <laughs> I just swatted it away. And what was I thinking? And, um, and, you know, because after the election ended in 2010, you know, I languished in unemployment for a long time. I eventually had to move back home to, to Huron with my with my parents. And I think you restarted um, Tom Talks, if I'm, if well, I'm not well, mistaken. I gotta, well, that's I didn't re, we didn't uh, we didn't relaunch Tom Talks. That's uh, that's still dormant. But I did take a job at the Huron Daily Plainsman when I moved back, um, you know, just had to make some money. I was living with my folks. Um, and I, yeah, there was a, a part-time opening at the paper. It was, uh, it was originally posted as a stringer position. So what the, the job, as it was described, uh, it was, it was for someone to field all these phone calls from area high school football and volley, volleyball coaches and, you know, type up the scores and the box scores and do like a little short write-ups. I mean, really like old school, local daily stuff. Um, but, you know, the, the cool thing about, you know, having a, a relationship with some of the people who work there, having a little bit of a history there, uh, and just, you know, by virtue of working for a really small staff, I was eventually able to just kind of sculpt that job and, into whatever I wanted it to be. And I was taking on way more responsibilities than what was originally um, advertised for the, for the position. And so I did that after I moved back, uh, and I was also substitute teaching. So I'd be like teaching three to four time, days a week, uh, all levels of the school district, elementary, middle school, high school, even did some special ed. And uh, so I'd do that during the days, and the school day would wrap up at three. And then uh, on most nights, I'd go to the Plainsman at like <laughs> five or six, and I'd stay there until like 11 or, or midnight. And... Uh, I just did that for about four or five months until, you know, I, I kind of started to plot my next move. And um, that's that's when I shifted my gaze out here to, to New York. I, um, you know, living at home with your parents, um, I it was definitely a humbling experience having to do that. But uh, there's no question it it allowed me to save a lot of money. All the money I was making uh, with that newspaper job and, and dubbing, um, you know, I was able to just pocketed and I really just have to credit my parents um, for really urging me to pursue something out here in a place like New York or, you know, an opportunity that, that might involve some risk. You know, maybe it's an internship. They, they were the ones who, you know, after 
having some fun at the Plainsman, getting some recognition. Um, I actually did win an award for my uh, my high school soccer coverage. Believe it or not, I uh, I think that's still hanging in the the Plainsman newsroom. And my parents, I think they could recognize that this was um, this was you know reinvigorating my my interest in journalism, and I that had been reawakened. And uh, they they really said, you know, I think I think you're this is your calling, and you know you should look at some of these internships, and you know we, they said they'd be willing to support me. Obviously, I had a lot of money saved up, um, and so I just went for it. I, I Turned out all these applications. I applied for an internship at, at Mother Jones, um, a number of other publications too, um, including this this small little news political website uh, that I've been reading since high school uh, called Talking Points Memo. And uh, I I applied there. I knew I had been somewhat aware of their internship program for for years, and. Uh, I just, you know, took a flyer on it as I did with all of these other uh, applications, and uh, I actually was a finalist for the Mother Jones one, and I was a, a finalist for the the TPM internship, and uh, TPM hired me, Mother Jones didn't, and so rather than going out west to San Francisco, which I, which is where I would have gone for the Mother Jones internship, I went east uh, to New York, and. Uh, that was the tail end of 2011. That's that's how I uh, that's how I wound up out here. And I guess, can you explain a little bit more about what that organization um, covered? What your role there was? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I, I I treated this very much like a job seeking mission. This is the tail end of 2011. Moved out here uh, in uh, December of that year. It's like the week after Thanksgiving. And so I knew that it was going to be a very gopher-like role, right? You know, a lot of remedial tasks, a lot of, um, you know, just probably some errands, a lot of drudgery and stuff. But I, as I said, I, I approached it. I, I would refer to it to all of my friends and my families as a job-seeking mission. I was just hell-bent on making sure this internship turned into something permanent. And I knew that, you know, going there right at the outset of an election year, this was 2012, right when the primaries and the caucuses were really going to rev up, I knew that would present some opportunities to, to you know, maybe distinguish myself or make myself indispensable. And so, you know, I would be working late on these primary nights, these caucus nights, um, and a lot of it was just back in those days, this almost kind of feels primitive because I feel like there are services, there's probably just way more efficient ways to do this. I mean, Twitter, Twitter itself is a repository for information like this. But often what I would do as an intern is I would, uh, we, we conducted most of our business in, uh, on Skype. We had these various chat rooms set up within Skype, very much like Slack. You know, every office has Slack now. And so you have these chat rooms designated according to topics or, or their function. And what the interns were really counted on back then was uh, what they would call flagging, you know, flagging relevant nuggets, whether you saw something float on Twitter or you, you heard someone on MSNBC say something really outlandish, you'd flag it. And, um, you know, they really took pride in being really fast and nimble. We were a smaller organization, but we would get stuff out much quicker than a lot of our bigger competitors. 
And so that was a huge responsibility. And on those debate nights and on, you know, the caucus and primary nights when the returns would be rolling in and there'd be various commentary on, on television, you know, that was that was really important to them. Um, as I said, I, it, it feels primitive now. That just seems like a very inefficient way of doing it. But that was one of the things. Um, and eventually, you know, from that drudgery, there's a lot of like Photoshop work. I had to like teach myself. I had no experience editing photos at all and just had to teach myself how to do that. I'd be editing photos for the reporters on staff. And, um, you know, I just, it, there's, there's no other way to put it. I just, I just busted my ass and, uh, I'm sorry. I don't know if I can say that. I, <laughs> I, I, I work really hard. I, I really, I just, I just worked as, long, as as hard as I could. There were other interns there, and they'd often leave at like five or six o'clock. I'm not saying this to sound self-aggrandizing, I swear, but that's this is what I did, and it was um, it was thankless at times, and it was d- difficult because um, this internship was free. I mean, it, or, or it was uh, unpaid, and I I feel like I was, you know. I got to be in the, the last generation, one of the last generations of unpaid internships. They're basically unheard of now. I mean, they're illegal. And, uh, but as I said, I just, I knew it was going to be tough. I knew it was going to be difficult to scrape by. I had money saved up from, from the months that I lived under the same roof as my parents. Uh, I sold my car that my, my dad got me for graduation. Uh, and you know, that, that gave me some money, but it was tight. I, I just, I did that for months and months, just hoping against hope that it would eventually, that this goal of mine would come to fruition and that it would pay off. And, um, it did. It did. That's, that's the long story short, the long and short of it. Uh, it, it actually did work out in the end. Uh, I, my bank account was completely running on fumes at that point. And I was really starting to, uh, panic as were my parents, but it all worked out August of 2012. I'll never forget. Uh, my boss summoned me over and, uh, offered me a, a full-time position. So I ended up staying there for, uh, three years. I, you know, I became a, a full-time reporter, covered a variety of different stuff, um, became one of the more prolific writers and reporters on staff. And, uh, you know, I was there until the, the tail end of 2014. Did you have a, a hard time adjusting to New York City? I, I'm curious, just coming from here on, what was that adjustment like? You know, a lot of people, obviously that's a... Um, it's it's an obvious question to ask, given my my background, right? You know, whenever I introduce myself to, to someone here, uh, whether it's a, a cab driver or you know, someone I'm meeting at a, a party or, you know, a friend of a friend, whenever I tell them I'm from South Dakota, uh, the, the first response is usually, one, I've never met anyone from South Dakota. I get that all the time. <laughs> and then, two, it's, you know, they, they're curious, I mean, what was it like? coming from, from South Dakota to New York City. I mean, what was, you had to experience some culture shock. And I got to tell you, it, I, had a, I, I, I feel very lucky. I, I had a smooth transition. I, I didn't experience any homesickness. It, could it feel overwhelming at times, you know? Sure. But never, I, especially in those, those first couple years, there was um, there was something pure about it, you know. I was experiencing everything this city had to offer for the first time, and every everything's always going to be the 
at, at its best when you're experiencing it for the first time, right? That, that's that's just going to uh, it's just going to be more special. And uh, so for me, I, I just felt like I was walking on on clouds, you know, for the first two years. I was very wide eyed, and I I loved everything about it. I I I think I just always had this this big city mentality ever since I was a little kid. I remember, you know, when I was in the fourth or fifth grade. Um, going to visit relatives in Boston and being immediately, you know, swept up. <laughs> Just the, the big city energy. And I, it, it was, it was not difficult for me. It, it definitely is radically different for sure, for sure. And uh, it's louder and it's dirtier and it's more crowded. Um, but I think for me, and, and maybe this just speaks to how I'm wired, uh, I, more than feeling overwhelmed about moving to New York, I was just enchanted by it. I was, I was blown away. Um, I loved the availability of everything. I loved uh, how you can order food, basically any kind of food at any hour of the day. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, That's what I, I miss. Bars. Living exactly. You know, I, I love... I love that the bars never really closed. Um, I I love the subway system. I love that I can walk everywhere. You know that that's something that's been a real uh, source of pleasure for me since I since I moved here. I have become an avid walker, and I think that you know the New York City lifestyle just demands it of you. But it's it's also just a great pastime, you know. And I think that you know in smaller, more rural parts of the country, that that is something that. You know, a lot of people don't do it. It's a very driving centric culture. Although now that I mention it, I feel like you and I, we took our share of walks at USC. I can remember uh, going on some very pleasant strolls with you through through campus and, and elsewhere. Yeah, usually we were, at a we fairly late in the evening hour, I would imagine. But I yes. think we, we took our fair share. Definitely. But, it's, but you know, that's, that's what's so great. You know, um, I don't need, you know, you know the museums and all the shows and all the attractions, the sports, um, the arts, it's all great. And, you know, having that at your disposal here is, is amazing. But it's also cool to, you know, have a, have a great and enjoying, enjoyable, satisfying experience, uh, very enriching experience, really, just, just by walking out your door and, and going for a walk for, like, you know, 15, 20 minutes, strolling to the park and... You know, the people watching and uh, just the, the sights and the sounds, it's, it's all great. And so, yeah, I think I think I was just kind of, hey, I'm, I'm just wired for, for a big city. And I, I totally understand why, why some people um, <laughs> have misgivings with it. I get it. I get it. I mean, there, there are moments when, you know, the subway's late and it's just like stop and go or it's crowded and the, the streets are flooded. I mean, there's, a, there's no shortage of unpleasantness uh, <laughs> to city living, but um, I guess for me, just the, um, the, the excitement, the, the thrills, the um, just how, how unique and, and uh, new everything is every, every day is new. Uh, I, I think that just kind of, that eclipses 
whatever drawbacks there might be for me anyway. So you had, like you said, you had been at Talking Points Memo for a few years, um, mainly doing political coverage, I think. Um, right. But at some point, and did you start to cover media issues at Talking Points Memo, or is that when you got to CNN? Well, so. And when you know, and to ask this a different way, I guess when did the CNN position come into focus? Right. Well, so um, you know, TPM definitely uh, had its own sort own own brand of media coverage. You know, they they're always glued to, to cable news, as I said earlier. Uh, you're you're always mining that stuff for for material, and. Um, at TPM, everyone is more or less a, a generalist. It's a pretty, pretty uh, thin staff, so everyone has to chip in here and there. You can't just get uh, no one's too siloed off, uh, uh, or no one's too uh, beholden to one beat, you know, over another. But I did kind of zero in on on media coverage and, and media centric stories toward the end of my time there. And it was around, it was 2014, uh, when Brian Stelter, um, who is a CNN anchor, he's their senior media correspondent. He hosts, um, a, a weekly show on CNN called reliable sources. Uh, he had reached out to me, in 2014, he had seen some of the stuff I, I was writing. He started following me on Twitter. And he had just gone from the New York Times to CNN to, to serve as their new host of Reliable Sources. It's a longstanding like, media criticism show that they have. And so they had this, this fledgling media desk that they wanted to build out. They wanted it to be... Uh, you know, like a like a media desk at a newspaper, like at, at the New York Times, where Brian had just left. And so he had reached out to me and said, you know, that there might be some openings, and that, uh, you know, would this be something you'd be interested in? And it was around this time when, uh, and I don't want to get too off track. We don't need to get too deep here, but I I suffered a uh, pretty traumatic accident. And I fainted on the subway platform and I broke my jaw. I remember that. And yeah. yeah so, uh, that was a big ordeal. Uh, I was, uh, resigned to the liquid diet for the first eight month, uh, weeks and then the soft food diet for about a year. And so, you know, this, this inquiry or this interest from CNN coincided with this, this major trauma and, as I'm sure you know, um, as is the case with a lot of job offers, they, they tend to move in slow motion, you know. Well, they might reach out to you about a possible opening, and then it doesn't even come close to materializing for like four or five months. It just, it just moves in slow motion. Well, it makes me laugh because so, I want to say that because I came out to New York City, um, I want to say actually it would have been the end of 2013 because we went to David Letterman's last Yes. Um, Halloween episode together. And that is that's right. kind of how I replace it. That's how I remember it. Right. And so, we right. had a good time. It was obviously a super awesome trip. But I but I remember, I, and correct me here if I'm wrong, because I, I could totally just misremember this. But I want to say when I showed up, you were like getting done with an interview, like your first of a million interviews yeah. with CNN. Do I remember that right? Or No, you, you do actually, you know, uh, that was a slight correction. That was a, an interview with a different Oh, okay. I, oh, but, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, that's just a small flex. I, uh, I feel like a real uh, <laughs> arrogant 
Uh, I'm sorry, but uh, no, but actually, I I should back up a little bit. So CNN had reached out early that year. This was 2014. Um, the, that that major trauma befalls me. I'm I'm recuperating from that. And their first offer to me actually came in like June of that year. And you know, I'm just overwhelmed with um, this this medical episode that I'm I'm still grappling with. Uh, my grand my grandmother had just passed away. It was just a, a nightmarish like three to four month stretch and it culminated with this offer and uh, you know I thought I was gonna take it. They were offering more money than, than what I was making at TPM. But uh, when I went to my boss at TPM and he matched their offer, I just went you know what? That's good. I'm going to stay put. I don't, I need stability right now. I'm not, I'm not going to deviate from the, the status quo. You know, I, I just, I needed things to, to just keep humming along. I, I wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't the most auspicious time for change. I put it that way. And so, um, kept, kept plugging away at CNN for the next four or five months or so. Um, made it to fall. And that was around the time that you came out for your, your aforementioned visit. And that was, uh, that was around the time when CNN and another, I guess, uh, we'll, we'll leave them unnamed. Another publication, another news outlet had, uh, approached me about, uh, joining their, their forces. And, uh, I ultimately ended up going with CNN. I started with them, uh, in December of 2014. And, uh, yeah, it was great. Yeah, that was great. You, you, um, our paths crossed during that very fateful chapter of my life. How well, about that? And I always loved your position at CNN, your rivalry with Bill O'Reilly um, in particular. <laughs> um, but I always called it media on media crime. That's what I thought that you did a lot of because you, you obviously covered media. And this is obviously kind of getting into some of the substance of what we wanted to talk about more than just um, your life and career is, is obviously the work that, that you have done. Um, are there any stories that you remember specifically from CNN or any projects that you worked on that you're particularly proud of? Oh, for sure. I mean, so I, I arrived, you know, right at the tail end of 2014 and within like, you know, two to three months, there was a, a meet, uh, a very juicy media scandal involving Brian Williams. Do you remember this? Oh yeah. The, uh, he, um, lied about, uh, well, misspoke, right. whatever, whatever, whatever oh, happened about, uh, some stories being lie. in, was it like he was in war torn countries or something like this or what, what so exactly initial, was it? The initial lie, uh, fib that, that did him in, um, and I shouldn't even say did him in because he's still on the air. So he landed on his feet just fine, but, uh, he definitely suffered a demotion. The original, uh, the original lie for which he got busted was a, a claim that he had repeated over the years that he was in Iraq on a, on board, aboard a helicopter that had drawn some enemy fire and had to make an emergency landing. And he had told this account on Letterman. Um, I think he had told it on NBC. He, he had invoked it repeatedly throughout the years. Um, and eventually, you know, people with whom he was embedded on that particular assignment came forward and said, no, that did not happen. Uh, and 
you know, it was just one of those things where it was like, he, and he said, oh, I fog of war, I, I misremembered, but it's like, you know, if you if you if you are forced to make an emergency landing in a war zone, uh, I think that's something you remember vividly. <laughs> so, but it you know it snowballed from there. It um, a number of other questionable claims or questionable accounts that he had shared over the years uh, came into focus, and you know he was sidelined for about four or five months. They pulled him off the air. He's, he was the he was the top rated network news anchor. He was the anchor of NBC News, the, the heir to Tom Brokaw, proud USD alum. And, um, you know, that was actually one of the, the uh, accounts, and it's interesting, uh, that I had reported on. I, I broke some news on a few few other uh, dubious tales that he had uh, that he had shared at, at various functions and events over the years and one of them was that he was among the first he had, he had said something to the effect and he had told it a, a couple times that he like Tom Brokaw was like among the first on the scene when the Berlin Wall fell and that's one of Brokaw's that's one of the big feathers in his cap as, as a journalist, right? That he was there. He, that he, he was on the ground when the, the wall started to come tumbling down. He was the first one there. And Williams would tell this account, uh, and it was, it was told in a way, he had a local news anchor position at that time in the late 80s. Uh, he, he, had, he had told that story in a way that made it sound like he and Brokaw were basically there at the same time. And by all accounts, Brokaw really resented him for it. But so that was a big story. Uh, you know, the one, the one that I'll, I'll probably never be able to live down and that I'll, I'll forever be connected to is um, the, the Gawker Hulk Hogan trial. Uh, I was down in St. Petersburg, Florida uh, for the entire month of March in 2016. Uh, covering the, the you know the culmination of this this lawsuit uh, that was brought by pro wrestler Hulk Hogan against uh, the now shuttered gossip website Gawker, which uh, had years earlier published a like a highlight reel of this Hulk Hogan sex tape. You know, uh, Hogan sued him for invasion of privacy. So the most interesting, the most notable. Uh, part about that whole saga, of course, is that it, it eventually uh, came out that Peter Thiel, the, the billionaire libertarian hedge fund guy who's also a, a Trump supporter, uh, he was he was subsidizing Hogan's lawsuit against uh, against Gawker. Um And so, yeah, so, you know, I mean, I, I met Hulk Hogan, you know, that I just, uh, one of those surreal moments in life, you know, like walking to the bathroom and making small talk with this dude who I used to watch every Monday night when I was in the fourth and fifth grade. It's like, what? <laughs> and so, well, so you, so you obviously have covered a lot of media. You've written a lot of stories on different media personalities. You understand their personal failings. Yeah. How much yeah. of the criticism that gets directed at media um, do you find be accurate or authentic? What would be your take on that? It's a tough question to answer because um, I, sometimes I, I think that some of the criticism that's levied at 
news outlets, particularly the major news outlets. Um, and, you know, it's, it's criticism that, that comes from both the left and the right, by the way. I think right now, at uh, this particular moment, some of the most vociferous media criticism is emanating from Bernie Sanders supporters. Um, you know, they're, they're angry. I think from my own personal experience, and obviously I, you know, I'm just a lowly scribe, Michael. I, I'm not, I'm not privy to the, the, the big time, the, the, the weighty machinations that, <laughs> that might take place among the, the head honchos of these companies. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm not privy to everything. But what I will say is I think the way media bias or media failings are just like criticism of a, a certain strain of media uh, coverage, I think the way that it's framed sometimes is a little misguided. I don't think at least in my experience, working at one of the biggest news organizations in the world, uh, it's, it's not news, news coverage. The tone of, of, of news coverage isn't uh, sculpted from on high by some grandmaster. You know, I, as, a, as, a, as a reporter at CNN, um, I, I obviously took a lot of verbal abuse on Twitter via email from from Trump supporters and, and others. And uh, I was often, uh, you know, disparaged as some kind of puppet for Time Warner, the, the I guess, former parent company of, uh, of CNN, uh, now owned by AT&T. And I just, I think the framing of that, I, I think it's just misguided. I, I don't think it, I, I think that's just kind of a ham-fisted, overly cinematic way of, of looking at it. I do think some of the, the same people who are levying those criticisms, um, I don't think the criticism itself is always misguided. I don't think they're, I don't think they're always wrong uh, to criticize the way the, the media is covering a certain story. That, that part has merit. It's just the way that they... They view uh, the way that, that that a story is is presented. It, it often is done on the fly. You know, a lot of times we're we are moving way too fast for our own good when it comes to the, the preparation of these stories, and that's oftentimes how um, how the, the the failings come about. That's oftentimes why a story doesn't quite hit the right notes or it doesn't say it quite right or might contain a, a glaring error. Um, I think that the biases, to the extent that they do exist, um, in my view, I think it's more, it's, it's largely because they're internalized. I don't think that there's some grand puppet master dictating the way the reporters tell the stories. I think that sometimes these attitudes about a certain issue or a certain candidate um, just get internalized uh, among a, an entire staff or an entire newsroom. And that can extend from on high, you know? It, it, can, it, it can be a, a top-down effect. I, I, 
I guess I, I'm just I, I would only push back on the hyper conspiratorial idea that um, I was, you know, just <laughs> taking taking uh, direct orders from Jeff Zucker, the president of CNN, left and right. It doesn't doesn't typically unfold that way. But um, but as I said, you know, I am the media has made a lot of mistakes in the Trump era. Uh, they're making a lot of mistakes right now in, in their coverage of the, the 2020 race. There's no question. Um, it's, it's a, it's a failure to understand why certain maxims, certain ideas that just get promulgated from, uh, you know, these Washington institutions, these mainstream media organizations, why they don't resonate with everyday voters. You know, I think that in 2016, when you go back, especially to the, the Republican primaries, you know, early on, especially right after Trump's announcement, right after he got in the race, the polling notwithstanding, everyone just insisted. There was just this, this widely held assumption that he's not going to be the nominee. Because someone like Donald Trump isn't the nominee. It's going to be someone like Marco Rubio. That's who they'll, they'll rally around. He's a, he's a safer choice. And that's just a real, you know, that obviously underscored a, a huge disconnect between uh, the, the guys, the avatars for the Republican Party who were going on CNN and MSNBC and even Fox to a certain extent to, to talk about conservative politics in the state of play in the Republican Party. They were clearly missing something that, that, was, uh, that was very deeply held among the rank and file. You know, and I, I think that you can see something else something similar happening uh, with Bernie's own ascent. Well, and, um, I, and I want to talk about what happened with Iowa and uh, maybe even play some predictions about what's going to happen oh God. this primary and caucus season. One, I wanted to ask you, though, a procedural question just before we get off of journalism. You know, and I think I've asked roughly this question to you before just privately. But, you know, in the news recently, much has been made of um, what, what, what might be considered off the record. Um, oh. you know, journalists interviews, um, you know, a principal or a potential, um, you know, subject. And how does that process work? I mean, when you ask to interview uh, a politician, is there a press person coming back and saying, okay, but we're only text- talking about X, Y, Z? Um, what are the rules that come with just talking with someone on background versus a source? Like, how does that process just work in practice? Um, you know, it, it varies widely. It depends. Uh, and it, it usually varies depending on the, the stature of the profile of the person you're trying to talk to. <laughs> so, um, you know, if, if I reach out to someone directly, it depends on what I'm trying to get out, out of the, uh, the person, right? In some cases, um, I, it might be I'm, I'm, I, I might be under no illusions that I'm going to be able to get this guy on the record. You always try for it, right? I mean, that's ideal. Maybe he'll play ball. Maybe he'll, he'll sit down for an interview. You never know. But in, in certain cases, uh, when you're, you're writing about something that's sensitive, writing about something that a lot of people aren't at liberty to talk about on the record, you know, you're, you're putting out feelers to people um, just in, in largely in the hopes of getting information, right? That's what you want. And with those people, um, you know, you, you might just go in there with an understanding that 
they're going to want to protect their identity. Their jobs might be at risk. Um, and, you know, whatever they can give you, that's great. If I'm, if I'm trying to get an interview with someone, you know, again, depending on the, the profile of this individual, uh, I might reach out to them directly and say, I'd love to talk to you. I, I, I want to get your voice in this story, uh, et cetera. Um, but if it's a big time person, if it's, if it's a VIP, Michael, uh, then I will probably have to go through that person's uh, PR apparatus, which um, is rarely ever pleasant. It's, uh, it, it can be a maddening experience. And what you, what you said in the question was absolutely right. They, their, their whole modus operandi is to uh, rest as much control as they can over the terms of the interview, right? They, they, want, they want to dictate what, where you can go and what's off limits and how long the interview is going to be. And that does happen a lot. They want tight control. Um, now, you know, sometimes I'll be talking to someone and it will be an on the record conversation. And, you know, maybe, maybe they'll want to wade into uh, some, some stuff, some material that is sensitive and that they're not comfortable talking about on the record. What's customary and what I always remind people who, who don't understand this, whether they're, they're young journalists or whether they're people who I'm talking to on the phone for a story who just have no concept of on the record, off the record. On the record is a two-way street. <laughs> it, can, it cannot be established unilaterally. And people need to understand that sometimes you can get away with it. But if you want to go off the record, the reporter needs to agree to that too. And that, that's where things can get dicey. You know, sometimes if it's, eh, I'll just play ball. If I, want to, I, don't want the, I don't want to derail the conversation. Hey, is it okay if I, uh, if I go off the record now? Sure, sure. Go off the record. Okay, can we go back on the record? Great. There are other times when, you know, uh, I don't want to answer that. Can I go off the record? No, I'd rather you don't. I'd rather you don't. And you know who really tries to pull that the most is a PR professional. Right. Uh, I, I will tell you, and I don't think I'm speaking out of school here, uh, <laughs> you know, the Fox News PR machine is sort of notorious. Uh, it's, they are, they are ruthless. They're aggressive. They are effective. They're, they are very good at what they do. And what they do is, again, dictating the terms of the story, trying to, uh, push a reporter off a story. Maybe a reporter is, uh, hot on the trail of something. Well, make that trail go cold. That's the Fox News PR machine has a, a reputation for that. And in my, I, I've, I've been on the phone with many of them over there. Um, I actually have decent relationships with most of them over there, believe it or not. Uh, but oftentimes what they would try to do is, oh, can we go off the record? No, no. If you want to talk about the story that I'm working on, <laughs> we're going to stay on the record. Because I, you know, this might be something that is useful for my reporting. So it's really, 
you know, I, I hope that's not a, a convoluted answer. I was just trying to walk you through the no, I, I, no, the I think that is various helpful. scenarios. You know, so, so then when let's say you're just getting information on background, um, mm-hmm. and you do get a crucial piece of information, or let's say that the information can be publicized on the condition of anonymity. You know, in those situations, what do you do to corroborate the information before you publish? I mean, and, and obviously I'm just talking about, um, you know, leaks and, and stuff of right. that nature. I mean, how much back, you know, back work are reporters and journalists doing to make sure that information is accurate or at least understand the motives that these officials have in releasing some information but not others or, you know, releasing the information but not putting their name behind it. I mean, what? how much of that is the calculus when you are determining whether or not to release information like that? Um, you know, it, I think it, I, I, I feel like a, a broken record here, you know, giving you uh, sort of non-committal answers, but I again, it just I think it depends. I think uh, it depends on the nature of the claim that's 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 being disseminated. You know, if it's one person, and and every editor has different different standards and um, different rules for stuff like this. It is these are these are the really tough calls in journalism. Um, and I, I think that, you know, if you come into a document or if you, you hear a, an explosive claim from someone um, about someone else or about something, then, of course, you have to get some kind of corroboration. And, you know, some editors have, you know, ironclad rules about that. Oh, we need X number of sources for that. We need X number of sources. I, I think ultimately... Uh, the the important thing to emphasize is that it is a judgment call. It it, it rests on the editor's judgment. They need to determine. You know, we, you could you can have all the corroboration in the world, and it still might be flimsy. It still might blow up in your face and turn out to be totally off the mark. And that's where the editor's judgment really comes in. I think that when it comes to publishing. Um, the, the sentiments of an anonymous source or, or someone you're, uh, you're you're affording anonymity to, you know, uh, I think it, it, it really, there, there does need to be a high bar. And this is my own uh, editorial preference, and it's, it's been sculpted by the editors uh, under whom I've worked. You know, I think there's a high bar for that. I think that sometimes you read um, stories that will quote you know, an anonymous source trashing someone, you know, disparaging them. I, I just completely disagree with that. I find that, um, I find that to be a really, I think it's an abuse of anonymity. Uh, and I think that if someone is going to, you know, uh, insult someone else, then they should, they should, uh, append their name to it. And I, I, I feel like that's, that's one standard that, and I think most editors worth their salt feel the same way. I, right. But, you know, you do get some, I just mentioned Gawker earlier. I mean, of course, you're going to have some delicious blind items and, and some, <laughs> some really juicy gossip columns that will include that. And I, right. you know, but um, it's, I think the, the, 
the broad, the most general answer to this is it just, I, I think there's just got to be a high bar for all of that. If you're, if you're giving anonymity to someone, if you're, you're reporting on, uh, you know, a doc document that has, you know, murky origins there, it's just, it, you got to be on firm ground because every journalist, you know, we're putting ourselves really going out on the limb. It's our byline there. And whenever you have to issue a correction, no matter how minor or seemingly inconsequential, you know, it's a gut punch. Um, no one wants that. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's just, it comes down to just having, just having sound judgment and, and right. just knowing when, when something is worth running and when it's worth holding. So, you know, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, um, but I did want to quickly touch on the um, Democratic presidential um, election. It's, it's primary and caucus season. We just um, had the Iowa caucus. We're recording this podcast the day before um, the New Hampshire primary. Um, yeah. I guess, what do you think? I mean, it, it it seems like you usually, you know, this is the point where you start to get some clarity in a political, um, you know, primary race. And with the way the results were reported in Iowa and with the situation that occurred there, it seems that there's almost more confusion rather than less. How do you see yeah. this primary season playing out? And I guess, who do you think is ultimately going to prevail on the Democratic Party side? Well, it's almost fitting that the uh, the Iowa results are so shrouded in ambiguity. And uh, I mean, what what happened there was is just a complete embarrassment. And they they might lose their they might lose their precious caucus as a result of that. And maybe they deserve to. But uh, it's almost fitting that we have that ambiguity in that. You know, historically, Iowa is a bellwether for Democrats in a way that it isn't for Republicans. You know, we had Ted Cruz, who won Iowa four years ago. He obviously didn't get the nomination. Four years before that, it was uh, Santorum. You know, four years before that, it's Huckabee. So the Republicans, yeah, they go with wild cards. But for the, on the Democratic side, the Iowa caucuses are an historic springboard. And I, I think that, you know, you have two, can, two candidates uh, each claiming that they won. Uh, I think it just, it just heightens the stakes on these subsequent races. It, tomorrow is going to be telling. Tomorrow might ultimately be the, the real referendum, the real bellwether. Um, if Bernie wins, I think the makeup of his coalition suggests to me, and, you know, the primary races are fluid. Right. Coalitions can shift. And I know Pete is is pulling in the, the absolute doldrums among minority voters. Um, and and maybe it does seem uh, hard to believe that that would that would change in any meaningful way for him. You know, results often dictate future performance in these primaries. And so I think it's important to remember that. Um, I think that if, if Bernie wins tomorrow, uh, it's, it's easier for me to see him just running away with it and, and really just uh, establishing a stranglehold on the nomination, asserting himself as the clear frontrunner by Super Tuesday. 
because I think that it's going to have a trickle-down effect in those those states like South Carolina, where he's already pulling well, Nevada, where he's also pulling well, and he's doing well in, in Super Tuesday. And so he's probably, by virtue of that, he's probably better equipped to weather a, a setback in New Hampshire um, than Pete is. I think Pete absolutely has to win if he if he wants any hope of, of uh, eclipsing Bernie in those those other states down the line. So um, it's gonna be it's gonna be tight. I mean the the stakes <laughs> are really really high. Um, but yeah, you know I I just saw a poll came out. It was the, the Suffolk poll poll, which was a uh, it's a credible pollster. Uh, showed Bernie with a lead there, so. <laughs> He won big last time four years ago against Hillary. Um, I would I would have to make him the slight favorite. Although I thought he was, I thought he would win Iowa too. I I didn't expect it to be even that close in Iowa. Right. Uh, um, so we'll see. Well, shoot. I don't want to take up you know more of your time. I, I appreciate it. You know, we generally like to ask our guests one last kind of philosophical question, and we should kind of conclude your career arc, by the way, because you eventually would leave CNN. Right now, you're freelancing. You've written um, a lot of pieces with The Guardian. I know that you have kind of transitioned even over to um, maybe your first love, sports journalism, and written some kind of profile personality pieces on uh, NFL player. Um, you know, at this point in your life, though, after everything that you've done, the ups and downs of your career, what do you know for sure? Oh, my God. And that's an Oprah question, by the way. <laughs> what do I know for sure? Man, oh, you're knocking me flat here, Ewald. Um, I know for sure that there is immense danger in claiming absolute certainty over anything. That's what I know for sure. How's that? Is that a cop-out? No, that's a good one. It's <laughs> <laughs> not bad. I also know for sure, just as, if, if I want to, if you want a, a, a more direct answer, uh, maybe more useful advice, I, I would say, just to, to reiterate what I, I mentioned earlier, trust your instinct when it, when it comes to uh, your professional. I don't know. I don't know how many kids are listening to this. I'm just assuming that I'm, I'm speaking to uh, <laughs> the student body at your seat. Probably not. But anyway, I just I I feel like if, if you if you draw any lessons from from my career, it's it's to just it's to trust your instincts. It's usually right. It usually is. And if if you if you feel reluctant about a job or a relationship or any experience, um, you you should heed that. You should heed those warnings. And uh, I, I think um, I think too often we we make deals with ourselves, and that that leads to that leads to a settling. And um, yeah, life's too short to settle. Agreed. There you go. There you go, Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, thank you uh, so much for coming on the podcast with us. Thank you for representing USD um, with everything you, you do. And also thank you just for being a good friend the last uh, several years. It's been fun getting to know you. Um, you know, after our playing days were over, it was fun to obviously become really good friends with you in college. But, um, you know, it's been fun to watch your career arc. I'm really proud of you and um, still hold the place, I think, as number one uh, fan in your fam club if your mom doesn't have it. So. Oh, well, well, my feelings are all mutual, my brother. I, uh, you know, I'm so glad that we've been able to maintain this friendship and, uh, 
yeah, I, I just uh, I think I think the future is bright for you too. I can't wait to see what the post USD e wall has in store for us. <laughs> well, it's a long time coming. So um, love you, Tom. I'll I'll see you out in New York this summer. How about that? All right, I can't wait, man. You're on. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode. 